anyway, I had to go to county lockup 30 days and I got out and my friends, like any good military friend should do, um, said, you want to like pay rent or get food? No, let's throw a party and invite whores and, and have a gangbang. Hey, welcome back for For the Road, everybody. I'm your host, Punk Rock, and we have a super special guest with us today. We have Mr. Don MD, an AMA Hall of Famer. How you doing today, Don? Good. Glad to be here. I'm glad. We're, we're, I think, I think Drifter and I are still a little starstruck. <laughs> I know you're, guys, he's super humble about it too. Like I, I use the words like celebrity and fame and stuff like that. And he just kind of smiles and kind of bows his head like, nah, that's not me. I just, <laughs> just do some stuff. But you, I don't think you really uh, like accept full responsibility for all the cool stuff that you've done. You know. Well, I've been very lucky to, you know, by I mean, but my folks were that way, you know. But but my dad, he achieved a lot in the motorcycle sport as well, and they just kind of taught me, you know, you're just always just a regular guy, and you know, if you were racing, you got you got to win races. But it, even in things you're doing in the in, in the industry, those type of things, it's all about, you know, being part of a community and and, and all that. So I, I've enjoyed talking to people, and you know, and it's, it's always fun to relive the relive live the old days. I don't have to be encouraged too much to talk about that. So. So for for those of you that don't know that you've been living under a rock and you don't know about Mr. MD, uh, he's done everything from setting records with his dad, Floyd MD, for being the first father-son duo when in the Daytona 200, both on Indians, correct? No, uh, actually, um, uh, Floyd was, he wanted on an Indian in Daytona in 1948 when they raced race on the beach. And 24 years later, I was at the Speedway at a Yamaha. On the Yamaha, that's what yeah, it was. 350 Yamaha, and I uh, won the, the same same race, the 200-mile uh, race at Daytona uh, on a 350cc Yamaha against all the 750s. So that was a big deal. Yeah, just, just oh, refreshing oh. competition. Yeah, yeah. So, Don, just for the listeners real quick, um, so Don MD, AMA Hall of Fame winner, uh, won the Daytona 272 on the Yamaha, the, the, the little engine that could, uh, prolific author, uh, speed record holder, uh, and just even today, both feet deep into the motorcycle world. Just It's like I'm talking to motorcycle royalty here. I'm a complete fanboy, and I know it's coming across that way, and I don't care. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Say, hey, same here, man. It's okay. I'm not judging. <laughs> so I first uh, was uh, turned on or, or exposed to the MD family through your dad in my club. Your dad was a member of the 13 Rebels Motorcycle Club, uh, mm -hmm. as am I. And, and for each member in that club, you have to learn as much history as you can. Uh, you're, you're grilled on it at, throughout your whole prospect period. It's, it's pretty intense. And as I'm learning about Floyd MD, your dad, I start seeing all these things that reference you and the entire MD family. And I think, holy cow, this is just amazing. And then whenever I reached out to you to see if you wanted to do this, I, I like I said, I just couldn't believe that you actually even came back and talked to me. And, and <laughs> here you are sitting right here. So um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your career, uh, how, how you got to where you're sitting here right now. Well, they the actually our family even goes back one generation farther than my uh, my father. My my grandfather was a uh, had a little motorcycle shop over in the El Centro area, in the California desert, 
and we have one picture of him around 1914 uh, in his shop, uh, kind of a repair shop. And then, but he also uh, another picture of him racing out at the fairgrounds in uh, El Centro, Fourth of July. So he was kind of a, but kind of just a local racer. But then later he closed up that little shop and became a motorcycle uh, patrol officer, first down in Imperial Valley. And then uh, he moved the family uh, after my father was born and uh, some other brothers um, from uh, El Centro area over to National City uh, and for a while Chula Vista uh, in the south part of San Diego. And then he was a, and, and continued to be a motor patrol officer uh, there. And so that's kind of where my dad kind of was, you know, but here's, you know, his dad's coming home from work every night um, on his motorcycle and everything. So obviously Floyd got kind of a, an early um, uh, indoctrination to uh, the, the, the life of uh, motorcycles, what those were about. And so he started riding, you know, pretty young. And, uh, and so, um, but, but those weren't riding like things like we would have done like our little mini bikes and stuff, you know, young in those years, you know, it was a teenage years and they'd ride in Indians and Harleys about the only things that they had to, to do. So, and that's actually how he met my mom, my, my uh, mother, her brother had a motorcycle. And so the kind of the teenagers down in San Diego, my, my dad's down in National City and my mom actually lived up in um, kind of like by around the um, San Diego Zoo in the Balboa Park area. And um, but, well. but somewhere, somewhere in between the two there, there were some fields and some open areas and the kids who had bikes, I guess, would just go down there and they'd ride and, and whatever. And my mom actually was in a, a bit of a club uh, to start with. And so uh, anyway, that's that's how, how they well, met. Hang on one second. Sure. Your mom was in a motorcycle club in the yes, 20s and 30s? I, I got pictures of her on her, on her you know, with her motorcycle and uh, everything. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was quite a motorcycle enthusiast, and so, so anyway, so it kind of leads her back around to me because my dad, you know, pretty soon, you know, my, you know, they're 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 connected and and going to the races, and and I actually I got some great pictures of Floyd with his thirteen Rebels jersey on, and uh, one at the uh, famous actually at Hollister where they had the TT, uh, and some of the early years, uh, even you know before they had the, the big problem year uh, there, but the uh, but he rode at that uh, uh, Bolero Park uh, with a. 13 Rebels uh, jersey on everything. I'd ride, I think he was riding an India then. Uh, but he went on to some big, big things. He, he, he hit the national circuit. And uh, first he was a Harley rider um, and riding a Harley WR, hand shift uh, 750. And he won some really big races. His biggest, one of his big races early on in 1946, he won at Riverside, uh, a track called Box Springs. Uh, they had a big 50-mile uh, TT uh, race, and it was the Pacific Coast TT Championship, and he won that, and he beat Ed Kretz, who was one of the big names in racing from those years, and that really kind of put Floyd on the map, And although they were actually pretty good friends and uh, kind of a mentor to him, but, uh, but Floyd beat Ed Kretz in 46 to win the, uh, uh, the Pacific Coast TT Championship, and uh, 1947 won the uh, uh, a mile national championship race in Milwaukee. Uh, against all the, the you know the top guys and and, and and more and more racing was really coming his way in, in the late 40s and then finally in 1948 went to Daytona on an Indian from the San Diego uh, Indian dealer Guy Urquhart and won the Daytona 200. So uh, so you know him and my mom they were they were traveling the country and you know they're really the life of a professional uh, racer and uh, then all the notoriety that he got out of that and actually kind of a funny story is when he won the Daytona 200. The uh, Indian company was actually looking for another Indian dealer in San Diego, and the uh, uh, the, the rep from the, the West Coast convinced my dad to take his $2,000 winnings, and that would set him up as, a, as an Indian dealer. And so he actually, for a few wow. years, was had Indian in National City, 
but that was about the time, you know, Indian was starting to kind of cave in uh, financially. But then the, the people that Floyd had met riding Harleys uh, actually wanted uh, – it was kind of a neat story. My dad used to talk talk about being modest. Uh, so he just tell the story about he's in the Indian dealership one day, and two guys walked in the door, and one of them was the local San Diego Harley Davidson rep, and the other one was Arthur Davidson, who was one of the founders of the Harley Davidson company. And wow. he was running the sales department there all the way till till the time he died. He ran the sales department at uh, Harley Davidson, and he told him that Floyd, we're looking for another Harley dealer down in, you know in town, and. Uh, he said, he said so those Indians would have to go, but if you're interested, we'd, we'd set you up as a Harley dealer. And uh, so uh, Floyd could see the handwriting on the wall that by, this was about 1948, well, and, you know, Indian was starting to kind of really lose its grip. Uh, yeah. Problems coming out of World War II and, you know, financially that, where they were. Um, and so anyway, so that's what my mom and dad got in the motorcycle business in the late, late 40s, and they were Harley uh, through about uh, 1964. And then... Um, uh, you know, things with Harley that weren't going so good. That was the AMF years, and uh, just the, the, the sales weren't really that great. And, and the, the big wave of the metric bikes was coming, the, the Japanese bikes and the British bikes. And uh, actually, the same guy who was, had been the Indian uh, rep that got Floyd into the motorcycle business by then was the BSA rep for the West Coast, and he actually got my dad to take on BSA, and, and then he also was able to take on Suzuki, and which was perfect timing for me, because as I was, you know, now it could be coming the, you know, I was about 12 or so, I think, when all that happened, so now I had little trail bikes and stuff to ride, uh, you know, out in the hills, and converted that into, you know, a racing career that was uh, not not real long, but, uh, you know, I raced professionally for about five years, but uh, won some uh, a lot of races, I said, was, in those years, you had to be uh, you dirt track race and road racing all as one big uh, series to be the uh -huh. AMA uh, champion. So, you know, if somebody really wanted to go somewhere, you know, you couldn't just be a, a flat track guy or, or a TT, right? You know, you had to be able to do all the different disciplines. And so I, I was lucky with my dad and some other people really got behind me and got me um, uh, a lot of bikes to ride. And uh, so I just kind of moved my way up the ladder. And um, my first year, my rookie year at Daytona, I was uh, third. Um, on a factory BSA behind uh, uh, Dick Mann and uh, uh, Gene Romero, who were the two, the, really some of the top guys at that time. And I got third at Daytona and actually third best in the points in road racing that year. And um, and I thought at that time, I thought, man, my career is going to be I'm gonna be a BSA uh, factory rider. But then financially, they were hitting the uh, – it was going down where the British bikes were going down because the Japanese wow. were now coming in. And I was able to um, uh, get a, a Yamaha 350 to ride. That was one of the, the good ones in '72, and won the won the race there. And that kind of, and then the, the, what that the, uh, did for us is that by, with my dad having won the race in 1948, and I won in 1972, we're the only father and son that have both won that uh, that real prestigious race. So, so it was just you know it was a, it was a great time for being racing, and uh, but I didn't have a real long career. Actually, another couple of years after that. There wasn't a lot of money in it in the sport in those years, and and you know I was had been working for my folks in their shop, and just kind of learning the motorcycle business, and so that's kind of where I am today. I mean, I never left the the business. I just stayed first working in in their stores, and then later some other shops, and then we got involved in marketing. I was at the Bell Helmet Company for some years in the, mm -hmm. their sales and marketing, 
And then eventually ended up in a, a, a company called Motorcycle Dealer News. I was selling ads, but I got me kind of on the publishing side and seeing seeing all of that. And it just eventually I, made, I became publisher of that magazine, did that for a few years, and eventually just started my own business. So in 1990, I started the business with doing some uh, book publishing and my own magazine. And we, that's where we get connected to um, Drag Specialties and Parts Unlimited. And we've been doing every month we do uh dealer magazines for them and then when i can get the time i've been doing the the magazine so so that's, that's kind of my story kind of brief but uh, I, you know i've just never left the sport and it's always been you know part of it and it, it's it, so, so sometimes i you know on, a, on any given part of a day i might be talking to somebody about what's going on right now and you know we're, we're dealing selling somebody ads you know this is the kind of things you guys are you know involved in or yeah. i i could i could go off of the other side and talk about history and you know uh, like the speed kings book was was one i just did and that was a big project but it uh it worked out oh we definitely want to hear that but i got a quick question sure so whenever you won daytona you were on a yamaha 350. yep everybody else is riding these big boys these 750s what was the feeling what were people saying were they saying you're nuts or, or what did you think about that well, you know, Yamaha uh, had really in the in the early seventies had was, was had come on, and they had that that was the the power to weight ratio of the bikes was was amazing. You know, the bikes hardly didn't weigh anything, and yet they had these uh, you know three fifty cc twin cylinder engines, and you know they 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 were really were pretty pretty darn fast. And so I actually had ridden Yamahas uh, in nineteen seventy before I uh, got on the BSA team, and they. Uh, uh, I won uh, a couple of big races on on those, and what happened was is that about that time, 1970-71, the AMA had used to have some older rules where uh, you know they really favored kind of Harleys and and when they were still around the you know the the Indians and they were um, uh, they limited well, like 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 the BSAs and Triumphs. Are you saying that the AMA played favorites? I find that hard <laughs> well, to believe. <laughs> they, 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 they just kind of like protected the the, 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 the the national market, I guess you'd say, for where the production was. Because actually the first people that really had to uh, uh, deal with, with that was the British. Because they had a, a, the way the rule was is that you could race a, a 750, you know, 45 cubic inch, uh, 750cc uh, uh, flathead, Indian or Harley. But anything with the overhead valve was limited to 500 cc's. That's why you'll, you'll see the pictures of guys on BSA Gold Stars or the Triumph Twins. They were limited to 500 cc bikes. This is like in the 60s and against the Harleys and, and whatever. And, and, and really, so it, it worked out okay. I, I think, I mean, there's still a lot of guys, you know, there was Gary Nixon, there was different Dick Mann. These guys were, were winning races on, on some of those British bikes as well. But finally, by about 1970, they decided, okay, we got to get more in, in tune with the, the world scene. And the thing that was called the Formula 750 was kind of coming along, and it was internationally where they wanted everything to be production-type 750s. So, and that brought in you know, the Honda four-cylinder uh, 750. Yeah. Uh, Suzuki had some uh, 750 two-stroke um, uh, triples. Kawasaki triples were coming in. And, and, and all these big, so there's a lot of big 750s, but in those early years, they, they also had a little bit of reliability problems or tires, that type of thing. But the, for a couple of years, the 350 Yamaha was really was the bike to have. And, uh, and I was able to get on one of the, the good ones at Daytona. And you know, it's funny was we went to Daytona the year I won, there was 
there actually was a lot of those because, because Yamaha already made them all available. And so there was a couple of, you know, factory Harleys, there was some factory Triumphs, the Nortons and BSAs, the Honda Fours, there were a lot of the, uh, but there was always just a, a few of those that were really all tricked out, you know, for, for racing. And then there was about 60 of these production Yamahas were in that race. So I always tell people, you know, people think the notoriety for me was beating all those uh, big 750s and they always had various you know issues and things what you know went on but i always yeah. tell people the, the the harder problem was beating all the 60 other guys that had a bike just like me and uh, uh -huh. was, there was a lot of them out there and so uh it was a real competitive time but uh, but it was in those years there was about 80 85 guys were in the race you know it was a, a, a lot of things but you just had to know how to go fast but be you know conserve your equipment to be around a lot of guys rode too hard and either crashed or just broke things and they didn't make make it through the race. So, how close was that race? Were, were you worried about somebody right behind you? Yeah, yeah. I had a guy on a, again on another uh, identical uh, Yamaha to me, and we raced all the way to the flag. Um, I had a little trouble early on, early in that race, and it took me till about the hundred mile mark to to get up towards the front, and uh, and I kind of caught up with this guy, and we raced about the whole second half of the race, and I ended up beating him finally by maybe um, 20, 30 yards was all at the end. So it was wow. Uh, uh, pretty pretty fast, but yeah, we went back and forth a uh, number a number of times uh, on the whole second half of the half of the race. So it was uh, quite a time. Awesome. See, so you have a close race there, but then you also boast about winning a race for over a hundred yards. Is that correct? The um, over a hundred yard. What do you what do you mean by that? Uh, I, I was I was reading your because uh, I was kind of. I was kind of bragging to my wife a little bit about who I get to talk to today. Um, and then your, uh, your write-up on, uh, on the AMA Hall of Fame website was saying that you boasted, you boasted a couple wins in excess of 100 yards over the number two. Oh, well, it might have been. Uh, I forget if it was 30 yards or 100 yards, but the Daytona one was, was, was close. And there was actually a race I won in, uh, in uh, 1970, the year of – uh, two years before I won at Daytona at the uh, Talladega Raceway. And yeah, that was one where uh, uh, Gary Nixon, who was a very well-known uh, racer and another uh, uh, San Diego, former San Diego rider, Cal Rayborn, uh, we all had identical uh, 250 Yamahas in the, in the 250cc race. And that's probably the one I was referring to. There was what I, where I beat uh, uh, Cal by his baby 100 yards and I think uh, Gary Nixon was, was even less than that uh, behind me in a race. But that, that race, we went back and forth about 25 times shared the lead on, on that one. So that's, uh, yeah, that's what that would, would have been. So, but yeah, so I had a, had a number of races that was, uh, you know, pretty close. And sometimes, you know, over that distance, you'd love to think you could just, you're going to run away and hide. But it was a very competitive time there in, uh, in those years. And, you know, a lot of guys, again, that were just some of the best known names of racers of all time, uh, I had a chance to race against. But, uh, uh, you know, winning sometimes, all it just took was a, a few, you know, a, a yard or two is all it took to, to have the win. Yeah, winning's winning. Yeah, yeah. So, so you did uh, this phenomenal. You first of all, you grow up motorcycle world. You're a motorcycle kid. Uh, your parents are motorcycle people. Your grandfather's a motorcycle guy. Yeah. You you go into racing. You totally spank racing's butt. Then you retire from racing, start publishing. Uh, so there's there's two books that I find just completely amazing. The one about uh, uh, Cannonball Baker. Mm -hmm. Where not only did you write the book, but then you recreated the race. Totally yeah. amazing. 
Can you tell us about that? Well, how that happened is I had, uh, I, in fact, I actually had done, had done one book uh, on the Daytona 200. was my first book that I had done. But it had been a lot, a lot of years since I had done one. And, um, and you know, it's funny how that uh, cannonball thing came about. Uh, I've been collecting a lot of literature and magazines and things my, my whole life, you know, uh, since um, uh, my dad at one time even gave me all his magazines from the 40s and kind of got me got me started. So I was already collecting a lot of, lot of stuff. And in about 2010, I think it was, somewhere in there, you probably remember when they started having these, what they called cannonball rides, the cannonball run. And um, and I remember hearing about these guys, and so the, the group that started the very first one, and so the first one was going to go from Kitty Hawk, um, that North Carolina, South Carolina, from the Carolinas, all the way to Los Angeles to the Venice Pier, and they were going to be on the old bikes, and they're going to come out there, and they're going to do that in, in 17 days. And so I, I, I saw the thing, and I thought, man, that is Sounded so cool getting all these old bikes and you know on, on the road and going, but the one thing that stuck with me real quick was when they said it's going to take them 17 days, and I I remembered that probably 20 years ago, I had bought a little booklet that the Indian company had put out in 1914, that was from Cannonball Baker and it was his kind of diary of the ride that he did in 1914 from San Diego to New York City. And he did it in 11 and a half days. And so I, I wanted to dig that, that that little booklet out and everything. And, and it was no, no disrespect to the guys that were doing this other ride. But I just thought, man, what, what a story this guy's got. I mean, that, that even now these guys are going to come on, on, on paved roads all the way from uh, the East Coast to, to, to L.A. And here's Cannonball Baker. Uh, and I started looking. I got this little booklet out. And reading about even going right out of San Diego. You know, he was soon right over into the into the desert. And he had to go out by the dunes over by Glamis and then and then actually rode on the railroad tracks down to, to Yuma and, you know, and, oh. and all the way out through, uh, you know, and, and basically he was on dirt the whole way. He said the only places that there was not dirt would be in the big cities. You know, you come through, you know, St. Louis or Indianapolis type of thing. There would be some some brickwork in the in the city limits. But as soon as you got to the city line. Uh, you were back on a you were the, back there. It was called the National Road, and you were just then on back on a dirt road. And he had it. He had mud when it was raining, and you know sand. And so, I, so anyway, I so I had gone through this booklet and was reading all this his escapades that he still was writing like three hundred and some miles a day, which you know today the three of us could get on bikes and go out and ride and have a three hundred mile ride. You think yeah, that's a that's a good ride? You know that would be. Yeah. You know, this guy's doing this on dirt roads on, on, on an old, you know, long handlebar, uh, 1914 Indian. Uh, it, it was like the, the revolutionary model with the, with the two-speed gear, which is really only really, it wasn't really a transmission. It was more like a bicycle overdrive kind of thing uh, on, the, on the back of a sprocket. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, the clutch was the, was the, you know, the pull lever, you know, type, you know, yeah. type clutch and, He's riding that through the through the sand and all these things. So oh. anyway, when I finally got the booklet out, I had been 20 years since I'd even seen it. And I didn't really probably read it at the time. I just kind of looked at it. And I started reading the guy's story. And it's just amazing the things that he that he did. And so I finally decided, Ben, this guy's story has got to get told. So I uh, I first uh, me and another guy we we kind of studied things for a year, a little bit of stuff on computer maps. But eventually we had to go out and we were out in the California desert. Uh, and then the KTM company actually lent us some adventure bikes. And so we were actually right out there trying to find, you know, how to recreate the guy's uh, uh, map. And see, it was what Baker did is in, in his uh, uh, journal, he 
put every town that he stopped at each night and started. So I so I knew where you know what the route was, where he went, but I just had to go out and see how much of it was rideable. So uh, uh, this other fellow, uh, Joe Columbaro, and I, we took about a year and we were we were checking the routes out. Eventually, made ourselves all the way back to the East Coast, and I had the route figured out. And as then as it was turning out, um, this was about that was about 2012. So 2014 is coming around, a hundred years to when Baker actually did his ride. So we finally, uh, at that point, KTM guys uh, uh, couldn't help me as much as I needed, and the Yamaha company uh, came in and uh, supplied two Yamaha uh, Super Tenere uh, adventure bikes because we, you know, we were riding sand and dirt and you know stuff as well as on, on the highway. So adventure bike was what we really needed. And so I started talking to some other guys who wanted to go along, and, and we put this Cannonball Centennial ride together. And so, but then the way we worked it out is 100 years to the minute. And on May the 4th, 2014, we're leaving San Diego to the minute of when Baker left uh, uh, there 100 years before. And and then with the way we did our ride is we weren't just trying to just, you know, bolt as fast as we could go. We took it kind of on the same pace. So we were getting as close to wherever we could still get hotels that might have been where, where, you know, where, where he was. We were stopping the same the same dates uh, that, that he was. And so then 100 years to the day, we made it on to Manhattan uh, in New York City and everything uh, that when he, he pulled in. So it was a, it was an amazing ride. And we were literally on a you know, thing called the National Road, the Santa Fe Trail, and all the different routes that he had taken back there and everything. And a lot of it, like the Santa Fe Trail uh, today, I mean, it was that was old stagecoach route in, in his day. Well, today that's Interstate 25, go through Santa Fe, New Mexico, oh. and over into into Kansas and whatever. And then eventually the the Santa Fe Trail, you know, makes its way all the way out to about Kansas City, and you pick up a thing called the National Road, which now is 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 uh, U.S. Highway 40. Uh, from there, so so we just so so we were you know uh, the GPS uh, route, even though there wasn't dirt anymore in most of the places, but still we were on his GPS route all the way, all the way to New York City. So so that's why we did a book on that and everything. And I just that's kind of what it was. It's kind of two parts. The first, just me and Joe getting it all figured out, and and historically some of the different things um, that had come up that we were uh, learning about, and we had a couple of adventures. Almost ended up spending the night one night out and uh, uh, trying to get ourselves over to Phoenix uh, and uh, had a, some bike trouble and some other things, whatever. But uh, so we had some, a few little adventures of our, of our own, but, uh, and it's funny, but even, even when we did our ride uh, of his, I mean, 300 mile days, you know, those were just fun rides and everything, but it wasn't like we were, you know, we didn't have the, we didn't knock it all out just in a couple hours. You know, we tried to take our time and yeah. um, see things and uh, it was, it was a great time. So. Now that would have made a great documentary. Yeah, I, I know what we thought about at the time. We were always even at the time thinking, about we should get some family, you know, a crew on and everything. And there actually was one guy that had gone along that the uh, uh, the motorcycle industry council kind of uh, supported a, a guy and sponsored a guy on there who actually did do a guy. Uh, uh, he did do a little video stuff on some YouTube stuff on on it all, but. Uh, so yeah, so we did that, and then then I rolled not long after that into my uh, uh, book about the board track racing, so the Speed Kings. And that's next. Truly <laughs> yep. really an amazing book. Please tell us about the Speed Kings. I mean, what what it is, how it came about, a little bit about the motodrome racing, if you would, please. 
Sure. Well, I think you guys mentioned that, you know, board track racing is something that, you know, mm -hmm. really interests you. And it's the same for me, I mean, even though I, I raced in the 70s at, at Daytona on, uh, on on pavement and I raced, you know, I raced flat track and, you know, my dad raced all this stuff on the fairgrounds kind of tracks and stuff, you know, that he did. But but board track racing always has had just this special place, I think, for everybody of how amazing that, that you know, that kind of had to, to be. And I, I mentioned earlier that I, I collected magazines and things, you know, all through my life. And, you know, like my dad's got me started on the 40s. By the time I was starting to ride, you know, in the in the 60s. So I'm collecting Cycle World and Motorcyclists and the AMA magazines and all that. So I've been had a pretty good collection from about, you know, about 1940 on to, to current. And I always just kind of had this, this really thought of it would be cool to just have the whole span of years of motorcycling, you know, all in a, in a magazine collection. And, but within what I was missing was, pre um uh, 1940s so i kind of back i don't know maybe in the 90s i think i started finally you know kind of collect things and that's kind of when ebay came around and i'd buy a few few magazines on ebay but the magazines from those real early years i mean they, you know they're you know they could be pretty expensive but but you could you could find them you know 1912 1914 uh but and, and you know it's funny you get one of those and it's kind of like an old sears robot catalog you know we see it. it's all fun to see you know the kind of the ads that type of thing. Oh yeah. yeah. But until you start filling in the the gaps of, of of the consistency of them, you don't really get the flow. And the challenge for me was that these magazines, and a lot of people don't realize, like maybe a lot of people have probably heard the idea that back in the teens that there was like a hundred motorcycle brands at one time. And yeah. uh, you know it was amazing. Now that didn't mean those were always companies as big as an Indian or, or Harley Davidson, but they were guys that were individuals, and but there was a lot of components that they could buy. So they could they could actually sometimes buy a whole engine and wheels, and you know they they had they put made their own brand and everything. But they still wanted to promote those things, and so the magazines had all these ads. And so there was a that started out with a magazine in New York called Motorcycle Illustrated, and it came out every week. And and these were mag these were uh, wow. magazines that were you know sixty pages, eighty pages, something the big show issue might be a hundred pages. They're knocking this thing out every week. So that also means a hundred years later, trying to collect them. You know, there's it's not you know not like a monthly or quarterly. I mean, I got you know all these things to try to do. And then there was another magazine in Chicago called Motorcycling. Same thing, and they started you know, about nineteen twelve or so in there. And knocking it out every week and so 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 really there's a lot of magazines a lot of a lot of content out there eventually around 1912 the the magazine that later became motorcyclist magazine also it was called pacific motorcycling uh came out and, they, you know, and then there was a west coast magazine the chicago for the midwest and then motorcycling motorcycle illustrated in the uh in the east so i started kind of collecting these things again on ebay and paying you know a lot of money for them and it was i was just kind of going along but eventually I started getting people even on off of eBay. Hey man, you know what? You know I've I've been selling you and I've sold you like six of these right now. I'm saying, I got I got fifty of these things from my grandfather. You know what? And so we started doing little side deals and all these different kinds of things, and uh, you know getting the pricing you know kind of down a little bit. And I had a few people sort of giving me stuff or whatever. So I started filling in a good collection of of the magazines all the way from even some early bicycle magazines from the 1800s. The motorcycle magazines of the early you know, teens, and, and from about 1910, 11 on, uh, then I started really filling in the in the gaps. So after I got done with the uh, Cannonball book, and I started kind of thinking, man, 
I've never done really done anything with this collection of you know I've got of all these magazines. So I, I one night I, or one day I went through and I started pulling out all my magazines and, I, and having a look to see if there's anything about board track racing at all in them. And the ones that did, I pulled those out and started bringing those home and scanning the pages. Well, before it was over, I ended up with over a thousand magazines that had something in them about board track racing back in those years. And then all the scan the pages, I ended up scanning about 6,000 pages of, of scan that had some, some of them were multi-page stories about these guys. Some were just little news clips about them. But anyway, so uh, then I, the way I filed them on my data, on a database, uh, I, I put it there so I could do chronologically. So then I could just sort of scroll through and I could uh -huh. see what I actually had the, the scan pages, but, but in chronological order. So that became kind of like my, my model. And at that point I decided I was just going to go for it. And I wanted to put a, a book together and, and, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of people have hobbies and motorcycles you buy. Sometimes you spend more money than, you you know, makes any sense to do. Other guys. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it usually works out, right? Or, or other guys got fishing boats or they play golf or they got hobbies, all these kind of mm -hmm. things. So being, this just kind of became my, my hobby, I guess you'd say. Because in the end, I think what I would have to say is the reason I think the book came out so good was, it's not, it's not, it wasn't a project that could ever have happened in a real company. Uh, you know, a real pub, book publishing company would never, to begin with, have spent the kind of money that I spent on the magazines, you know, to, to build the research library. And then the other thing that I needed that I was kind of been collecting through the years has been the photography and, you know, gathering uh, things. And I, I was very fortunate from some of the friends of my dad's as one of them got cut old and some people just gave me some of their scrapbooks and those kind of things. And I was able to also collect, uh, you know, uh, buy some other collections of people that passed away and those sort of things. So I had photos and I had the magazines to tell the story. And, and I just decided to kind of uh, go for it and started working on, you know, writing the whole the whole thing. And, you know, when I first started, I thought it was, you know, everyone always says, well, okay, board track racing got started about 1910 and thought I would kind of start there. But then I had these, these bicycle magazines that I'd gotten along the way that was from like the late 1800s. And, and I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but a lot of times people were, will refer to the founders of the Indian company as old bicycle racers. Yeah. And I, I used to hear that a lot. But I always thought, well, what does that mean? I mean, were they any good? You know, did they, you know were they were they big time? Were they just local guys or whatever? And I went back and found it. Actually, they were. I mean, the guy uh, Hindi, who was the uh, well, one of the founders, he was kind of the money man. With uh, another guy was Oscar Hedstrom, was kind of the technician. And Hindi actually was the first national amateur bicycle champion in the United States when bicycles started being brought over from England. Uh, another guy named Jack Prince, actually, who became later the builder of all the board tracks. He was the bicycle champion, and he got Hindi kind of coached him into becoming a, a, a champion. And the guy won in his amateur career, Hindi, George Hindi. He rode about 315 races, and he won about 310 of them. I mean, he hardly wow. ever got beat. And, and, and he was, again, he was the first national champion in bicycling. And then later he, he met um, Oscar Hedstrom, who in bicycling and he, you know, uh, is where they met. And together they, they got together to put together the Indian motorcycle and, 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 and company. That's how Indian got started. But so what, I guess what I'm getting at is, is when I got to about 1910 in my magazine, I realized there was so much more. And, you know, it wasn't like 
it wasn't like uh, from 1910 that I had to go back, you know, 500 years to to, to get to the, the the genesis of of wheeled sports. I mean, the first bicycle came in from England in like the late 18, maybe 1860s or so, and then bicycle racing got going, and then you know, again, and Hindi's part of it, and this Oscar Hedstrom, and these so these guys who went on to become the the Indian founder of racing bikes. So I actually decided to go all the way back, and that's where the book actually starts. Kind of a there's I think there's 75 pages is cycling stuff because you started with bicycle racing, and then they got the velodromes going, and then mm-hmm. the velodromes led to slipstreaming where the guys would you know be right behind the other guy and try to get you know get by him uh, right at the flag, and that became a real technique of, of bicycle racing. But then that led to what they call pacing. And that still kind of goes on today, where they'll, today they'll have a motorcycle uh, rider pacing ahead of a guy behind him on the bicycle, who's he's actually the guy in the race, but it's 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 in the slipstream, so it makes the guy be able to you know keep his his uh, his speed up. So pacing led to pretty soon the kind of a long story. It's it's in, it's in the book, but but they started they started to get the pacers where they'd have two guys pacing uh, on a, on the same bike, three guys, four guys. To, to give more power because the guy behind him on the, on the bicycle, it would kind of pull him around. And then finally one night at one of the races, they had the, they had these called motor pacers where they had uh, an engine in one of them instead of all the guys doing their, uh, their pedaling. And they decided at a uh, intermission one night to let the bicycle guys stay in the pits. And they, they had a race just amongst these motor pacers. And that really was what got uh, board track racing started for motorcycle. People went wild. They thought it was great to see the, the guys on their little motor pacers, uh, you know, riding riding around. And so eventually, you know, then there was a split final where bicycles kept going its way. And uh, this Jack Prince uh, started building these big, uh, bigger uh, velodromes that were that were became what we call, you know, the, the motor drones. But um, so it was a, so really it was about 75 pages to get me to, to the point of now we're racing, you know, uh, motorcycles and, uh, and getting all that all of that going. But uh, so it's so it's really something doesn't have to know too much extra background if you get started, because you can you can learn about the cycling, learn about the motor pacing, how that led into the, you know, the, the motorcycling and then the story of of the um, Board track racing, you know, it's uh, one thing a lot of people don't know about board track racing. You see a lot of pictures from like the 20s or, or there's even a couple of YouTubes out there of these guys running on. You'll see the films and riding these big tracks and things and yeah. they were going. But the, what people don't realize is that was the second generation. The first generation of motorcycles started on those small little velodromes, but they were oval shaped which meant you had kind of a longer straightaway and then a tighter turn and guys were crashing and they didn't really have good brakes and stuff on them. So this Jack Prince came up with the idea to just make a 360 degree circle high bank track. And so the tracks were like quarter mile, third mile. And, and sometimes there's a, still a few of these things, the wall of death guys that will show up at the county fairs and things. The walls yeah. of death were kind of like a, 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 a memorial to the true motordrome era because those were they were just real tiny little things but so many people you know kind of grew up uh, in the teens and uh, you know going to county fairs and uh, into the uh, different cities where they had the uh, the the races going and so when when after the motordromes went away then people were doing these little county fair kind of kind of things but that's uh but that's what they that's what they were bigger versions of like well if you've ever seen a wall of death that's mm-hmm. probably you know, 50 yards around, but, but uh, the real motor drones of, of the, of the room, my book, they were quarter mile, third mile, third mile, quarter mile. Some of them, there was even a couple, they were about a half a mile around, 
360-degree circle. And then the big track, actually, the biggest of the circular tracks, was in Los Angeles, uh, north of me here. Um, uh, it was It's called Playa del Rey. And it was over by the Los Angeles uh, Airport, International Airport over there. That was one mile around, and it was a, but it was a 360-degree circle. Um, yeah. But actually, in the end, it wasn't that successful. But the problem was it took too long. It took them, you know, 30 or 35 seconds to, to make the mile. And the the thing that made it, the board track racing so exciting on the little uh, motor drones, they were they would do a, a lap in 12, 13 seconds. And so the people, you know, were showing up and everything. You might have five or six guys, you know, having this race and everything. And, you know, in, in like two minutes, the whole race is, you know, the whole race is over. And so you had to really get there and really, you know, pay attention to what these guys were doing. And it was an wow. amazing time. And, and it became a big hit for a couple of years. Uh, tracks were, you know, L.A., Denver, Salt Lake City, Chicago, Buffalo, St. Louis. I mean, they, they, they really started to spring up and it became a big series. That's what's all you know, in the in the book, and I was able to get out of all my magazines was that was this era of all the things they did in the in the motor drone racing. So I didn't even actually cover that much about the later uh, era uh, because I just it was just kind of done. The story was was told about those small little motor drones and from there. So, right that was, so, so these tracks they were all made of wood, uh, yep. thrown together really quickly, and you hear these horror stories about these uh, the uniforms that these guys are wearing being shredded by all these. Uh, uh, splinters. I mean, is was that really the case? Well, what happened was that they had a lot of trouble with tires, uh, and, and a lot of it was the centrifugal force pushing down on these tires. And they, you know, the, the, and this is like 19, 10, 11, 12. You know, the, the the technology wasn't that good in the tires to begin with, but even if they're just running down the road, but the the G forces pushing them around these little third mile tracks, they were they were finally getting up to 80, 90 miles an hour. So you can imagine the the pressure on the tires. So they blew a lot of tires, and then then that happened, and then the guys would would go down. And yeah, so if you went if you went down, or you could you could pick up a lot of splinters on the uh, on the on the wood. Um, but yeah, a lot of guys would crash and, you know, they, they bandage them up, whatever. And, and they used to run a format where they might run six races in a day or something like that. Kind of like horse racing, you know, would, would run in a, you know, they were, or even motorcycle yeah. speedway racing where, where it's got not one big long race. It would just be a lot of short little races. So a lot of guys would crash and they'd bandage them up and they'd get him back out for a, you know, the, the next race and go in, go in again. But, uh, but there was uh, yeah, but splinters was a problem with the, with the wood tracks for sure. And you, you hear a lot about uh, the all these famous racers. You start reading about them, and then you end up reading that they they died on these tracks. I mean, was it really as dangerous as as you know the publications make it out to be? I know like guys like Shrimp Burns who died on the track. All these things. Was it really that bad? Well, he actually died in a dirt track race later. Uh, uh, Burns did, but he he did a little bit of dirt uh, board track racing. But the 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 problem that they brought into is is that the the high banks. The problem was that if you, when they first got these circular tracks started, if, if they would actually have some people, you could buy the the cheap tickets was to be in the in the infield. But then you know you're you're in the infield and you're you're you know these guys are they're going all around you, and, you know, so to keep track of where where it all was. So they 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 built the the seats above the stadiums, above the track, and then the people could could look down. And so it, as it first started about you know 19, 10, 11, uh, it all worked worked pretty good, and the people could just sit nice uh you know in, the, in their seats and they could see the whole thing going around in front of them and it was, it was just kind of an amazing show but the speeds in were maybe in the 60s and 70s and 
just they just kind of got lucky. There so were there were a few blowouts and some crashes, but the biggest problems were started about 1912. By then, uh, Indian had come out with they called the the the, the big uh, eight valve uh, big base uh, motor, and uh, it was they were running now in the 90 mid 90s or so even around these tracks high bank, and so there was a couple of really bad crashes. And the problem with those crashes was. A, a guy would blew out a tire, but instead of sort of spinning downward, he went up. And so, and so he went up and, and, and so they, they didn't want to have a big wall because people, they want people to be able to see through it, you know, so they had you know, usually just some, uh, um, you know, chicken wire or, you know, some real light thing. They had something they could see through. And so a couple of guys actually got up into the grandstands. And so, um, so riders, so riders were killed. They had a really bad crash in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and uh, uh, two riders were killed in the uh, in the crash. But about another eight were uh, spectators died, and so that's became you know that's where it really made started making the news when when you started having people in the grandstands, um, you know they're being killed. And so there was that one, and then the, a year later there's another one in Louisville. Um, uh, no, pardon me, in, uh, near Cincinnati, uh, Ludlow, Kentucky, uh, one where a guy um, got into a grandstand and hit a, hit a light pole that was on the outside of the track. His bike, uh, the gas tank split, fire went everywhere, and Ooh. another about 10 or 12 people died in a, you know, with gasoline poured all over them and, and, and whatever. So there were was, there was some pretty bad crashes, and, and just overall, and, and really at that point, uh, with those two there, people like Indian and Excelsior Company, some of those, they decided they just kind of had to kind of back out of it. And so it, it, it lost its momentum at that point, you know, and, and the spectators kind of quit coming in. And so it really became kind of a, you know, persona non grata uh, sport for a while. And it actually led kind of up to about World War One. That's kind of the break about where about all the tracks kind of fizzled out, uh, the little motordromes. And then they went through World War One. And then, and then getting into the 20s, they started this whole thing where the car people were building these bigger tracks about a mile around and all that. And um, and so it, it, it had a, about a decade uh, of that. And it didn't have the, as many of the problems as they did there. But you mentioned shrimp birds. I mean, so all the time this is going on, you'll see even in my book, the book is primarily about board track racing. But the same guys like shrimp birds and some of these other ones, they would run dirt track racing as well they might come into chicago and they they run the you know you know uh, friday night or something like that they might run the board track races and then sunday they're out at the fairgrounds and running a dirt track race and so uh, there was a but but dirt track in those years i mean the dust was terrible there wasn't any real way to keep the dust down on the track you know they didn't have like even that many good water trucks or yeah. chemicals they could put on the dirt so billowing dust was out there big potholes uh the the bikes had you know rigid suspension you know there were no suspension basically you know rigid frames and hardly anything on the on the front so when these guys would hit these uh you know big holes in the dust a lot of guys that they'd be down someone else would run them over or they'd hit fences and so really dirt track racing actually had its share a fair share of uh of the deaths and injuries in those years as well but um but yeah so it was a but it was a definitely not for the faint of heart there was a lot of guys that are mentioned in the in the book uh didn't didn't make it all the way through so I, I know we're kind of running out of time, but bef before we do, you are also, I'd like to talk about a little bit of this, you are also a president of a motorcycle club. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I'm president of a club called the Trailblazers, which is, uh, and all this, all that we've just been talking about, the, the coolest thing about the, about the Trailblazers, it, it, it's 
uh, this whack. We're, we're still trying to get a banquet going again because we've been on this uh, coronavirus uh, uh, hiatus that everybody's been on right now. So we haven't been able to have it. We weren't able to have our 2020. But up to this point, we've had, the Trailblazers has had 75 banquets, and it dates back to 1940s. But the thing about the 40s is those weren't guys that were young racers then in the 40s. Those were reunions of the guys that we've just been talking about that were the old board track racers, the, obviously the ones that lived through it all. And uh, but there was a lot of guys that had uh, that by 1940 they wanted to figure out, well, we're you know, yeah, you know, you know, we used to race it. Playa del Rey, or the, there was a couple tracks in LA and different ones, and they'd get together and, and they started these uh, you know reunions. So the, the Trailblazers is a organization. We've the last two years we've put 800 people into a um, uh, the, at the Carson Center and um, in the, up there near uh, Los Angeles area, and uh, you know people that but the, the people that buy the tickets, but it's just a reunion and it's a chance for people who have been around motorcycling. You know, all these years to, to, to come and we, we hang out all day. They have a little bike show and everything, you know, during the during the day. And we, we have our own Trailblazers Hall of Fame now. And we've got a lot of a lot of respect, I think, in the in the motorcycle uh, community. So. Uh, so, yeah, I, so I do that on the side. But I'm real, real proud of that organization. I always had to I kind of took it over from people who were the generations before me. And you know, I was talking they, they told me once that don't blow it on your watch, man. You got to keep this thing going we've been, been a long time. So we're still trying to figure out right now. We're, we're trying to monitor in the coronavirus because right now you know it's not going to be too socially acceptable to say oh yeah we're having a party with 800 people all jammed in a room so so we're looking at a couple of options how to get the trailblazers and we we do intend to have one uh, within uh, you know uh, probably going to be now 2021 but we, we'll we'll, uh, we'll get them back together again that's awesome absolutely awesome well don i i cannot tell you just how amazed i am that you're sitting here Talking to uh, you know a couple of degenerates like us is just amazing. Thank <laughs> well, you. Well, it's uh, you know we're all motorcyclists and we all ride down the same roads and you know do things. Of, you know it's always great to you know be in a, be around people. So you know happy anytime to come talk to you guys. It, uh, it's always it's just fun to talk about. I mean, I don't you know it's anymore when I'm I'm so involved in the in the modern business. Not all that many people, other guys you know in the in you know the industry want to hear you know hear all my old stories. So uh, it's great to be able to tell them sometimes. Anytime well, you the, want to tell an old story, you right, just okay. get hold of us. We're here. Well, well, I was say that's the beauty of the things that we do is we do this for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, I we've had we've had a few few of our uh, readers and listeners kind of reach out and say, "Hey, you guys should make T-shirts. You'd make a killing." And it's like, yeah, I I very firmly believe that that's true. But we're not here to we're not here to impress anybody. We're not here to make a buck. We're here to preserve history, tradition, and protocol. And what we're doing right here is very important to us, right? So. Amen. You know, it's good that we could live it. And, you know, and, and just already we're talking about, you know, people that we've, you know, we've known people from the generations, you know, you know, before, and both you guys, you know, you know, you know, you know, people that were uh, around, uh, you know, earlier. And a lot of it's just kind of like the Indian culture, you know, Indian, uh, the real Indians, you know, their culture, you know, they take their languages and things like that. And they tell their stories to their young. And, uh, you know, that's how their histories get, you know, get you know, told. And that's what really motivated me. We just, you know, we, we, we get all these stories. We know about these guys. And I was just lucky to be in a position to be having uh, publishing, um, you know, people around me, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, the art and all that. We did the, you know, the wrote the stories and all that and everything and having access to the, you uh, to the, the the magazines and stuff like that, but you guys know people as well, so it's always great being around people, just hanging out with people and hearing what they're about. So I got I got one more question for you. All right. If, all right. If you were to pick your favorite race, 
whether it's a course, whether it's um, a you know a specific geographic location, or even just something that you know was cool to you, regardless of what your standing was in the in the finishers circle. What would you say that your favorite race would be? Well, you know, in, in my years of racing, you know, the, the there's the two big the two big um, tracks uh, that was really had a lot of things um, going for it. One was the date was Daytona, the big 200 mile road race, and that that was the the premier race. But also, when I grew up, I mean, uh, Ascot Park uh, was a dirt track race, dirt track uh, right in uh, uh, Los Angeles, uh, you know, area right off the right off the 405 in Gardena. And they used to race every Friday night at Ascot Park, and so I got a chance to go there and race at, at Ascot. And you know, winning to, to, to win some races, I, I never won like a national race at, at Ascot, but I won a lot of the coming up the ladder and some of the other classes and, and whatever. But um, so really, you know, so Ascot was really special. And and actually, one race that I, I didn't, I could never do because uh, our American series, you know, had points and you couldn't miss things. But as I was kind of growing up, I was really starting to excel a little bit more on uh, in road racing. And I always wanted to go to the Isle of Man, and that was a race that was a big Grand Prix in, in those years and everything. And it's you know that you probably all you can it still runs today, so you can you know see it uh, when it well it, it will run again. And the same thing they're on, they're on hiatus as well. But uh, uh, and actually I had a chance to in the you know, I've been over there twice just to watch uh, whatever. But you know you know thirty three mile you know, track over one hundred and thirty turns uh, or thirty seven mile track I believe it is you know one hundred thirty turns and just. You know, these guys are running 120, 930 mile per hour average uh, around around you know that track and everything. So I've been over there to watch it now a couple of times. But that was, that was one that I was coming up. I was really reading about and some by Cycle Worlds and Motorcycles magazines and everything about racing in the in the 60s there. And just it never would work out. By the time I made it to the level, you know, uh, it just wouldn't wouldn't have worked out at the time. But uh, but I kind of missed I kind of missed it. I didn't get a chance to really ever race the Isle of Man. Not too, late. Think... not too late. Not too late. Yeah. No, I don't think I have the testicular fortitude to run that race, especially at the speeds they do. I mean, I'm a. I like to yeah. hot dog around stuff like that, but I don't think I could do. Yeah. Could do that stuff. It's really something to see. I, I've been over to it a couple times, and I mean, it's so amazing because it is. It is just you know through the towns out in the country, and you know a lot of blind turns, those sort of things, and these guys, you know, they they have to learn it. And um, it's, it, it, but the, the other problem I guess I kind of had is the guys that could really do it, you had to start kind of young when you're nobody and, you know, their, their first race, they, they, you know, they don't win anything, but they're just, they learned it, you know, Mike Hillwood and some of these other guys are these big names, you know, they, they kind of grew up through the whole sport. The problem by the time I was racing is if you get, to, by the time you got to where I felt like, well, maybe I could put, put like a deal together and go over there. You'd be expected to kind of win the first time, and you'd probably just kill yourself because there was so much that you had to know to be able to fly again on an average. You know, when I say average of around this track of 130 miles an hour, you know they've got one point in the track where they're running almost 200 miles an hour up, up the up the mountain, yeah. and uh, you know, and, and so the speeds of the thing is incredible, and, and you know, and any one little thing goes wrong, and it's it's kind of kind of over. So it would uh, it would never really wasn't in the cards for me to try to go. You know, to just arrive and try to to run at the speeds those guys do now, but uh, and and aren't these space. just regular roads? Aren't these just regular roads? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, yeah, on the island man. It, it's their main road all around the you know from you know Ramsey and you know all around the 
the, the, the town for the harbors and, and whatever. But yeah, it is. In fact, actually, when you go, you, you kind of have, it's a two week event. First week is practice. And the next week, every other day they have races and then they just open the roads up to, on the other days. In fact, if you're, when you're in town, you're at your hotel, whatever, and they, they have on the radio, it'll say, okay, um, get where you're going because at nine o'clock the, 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 they have the, you know, the gates are going to close and the, and the roads actually would close, you know, lock up at like nine o'clock that morning. And then they're it's closed for the rest of the day. So if you want wherever you want to watch from, you know, you got to get, get there. And so you actually ride on the racetrack to get to a point you want to go up, <laughs> map, you want to be out by the pits. You want to be out on the, on the, on the West side. And there's all every, with all the different turns they've got, there's just uh, amazing places to go go watch. But I really encourage anybody who's never been to it, uh, you really should try to go sometimes. Amazing. You know, and kind of a cool tidbit for our, for our listeners who don't know, you know, who haven't heard of the Isle of Man uh, Tourist Trophy or anything like that. It's actually, it was started for as kind of like a bootleg race because motor racing was outlawed in the UK. Mm-hmm. So they're like, well... This island doesn't, you know, it's it was inhabited and all that, right? But it was like, yep. hey, like they don't fall under the yeah, her Majesty's freaking rules. So yeah. we'll just go take our stuff over there and race it. Yeah, exactly. So. And, and, uh, and you know, and those guys, I mean, that's that's the, one of their biggest to this day. It's one of their biggest uh, revenue sources in the in the island. Man, it is, you know, how the UK is all set. You know, they're almost like their own little country. And yeah, they, so they kind of make their own rules, uh, you know, you know, over there. But it's a it's a wonderful event to go to, and, and the people. You know they're they're happy to see you. You know you know some of our places we can go sometimes on our motorcycles. We're kind of the the outcast out of the whole thing, you know. But but the Isle of Man, they're they're happy to see you, and you just don't you know, it's not causing trouble, whatever. But 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 the places you can go and watch watch the races from and everything is really it's a really neat experience to to do. And people they, some people can you know you can fly over into England. You can rent bikes. You can, there's a lot of different. There's a lot of ways to do the Isle of Man. You can actually just Google it and you know, you know there's YouTube clips of, of a lot of the races and even the you know but the how do those travel bureaus that take people over to they'll get you the hotel get your bikes to rent because again on those every other day you can just go out and ride virtually ride the red racetrack but uh, and they have a few people they lose a few people every <laughs> every year at that too but uh, that's yeah. another story yeah yeah and that's you know that's impressive because I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you speak about how. You know, they'd have these high bank tracks and and how, you know, like the smallest thing could go wrong could end up in a fireball and, you know, dozens of people are killed. Yeah. Where here, you know, we kind of, you know, we see these races today on these on these phenomenal sport bikes. And it's just like, well, what happens when they wreck? I'm like, ah, some plastic gets spread on the road. He gets, yeah. a, gets a couple of bruises. He walks a little limp for a week, you know. Yeah. Well, it's come a long way from when I raced because nowadays, you know, they have uh, air fence and all these different things and they've really got the tracks, uh, you know, even the MotoGP races you see where they, you know, they got all kind of runoff and everything. But you know, I, I kind of raced around a time when there were still, you know, guardrails and different things you could kind of get into. And uh, it was a, it was kind of a dangerous uh, time. But it, uh, it over the years, it's become better now. It, it's a very professional sport. Yeah, and AMA uh, road racing in the States and uh, they like MotoGP and World Superbike uh, over there. The tracks, they really you know, got the tracks figured out now where if a guy, you know, there's runoff and there's even at the end of the runoff, there's, you know, little sand pits to slow you down and then air fence if you actually still hit anything. So, um, you know, things can still go wrong in racing, but uh, they don't lose near as many guys, fortunately, uh, these days that they did. And even in my years of racing and for darn sure back in the board track days. So, so I actually do got one more. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> surprising. I know. Right. Shocker. Um, your family, like you said, you grew up in a motorcycle family. 
Um, and to me, equality is a big thing, um, especially being the father of a beautiful little baby girl. Um, your sister, Nancy, mm-hmm. also raced, and yep. she also holds a couple of championships herself, does she not? Yeah. We had uh, – my, my parents had five had five kids, and I'm kind of the middle, so I had uh, – uh, an older brother and sister and a younger brother and, and sister and everything. And actually, my oldest brother, uh, Bob, was a racer. Uh, and did you know, some race at Ascot and, and, and raced at Daytona and the things uh, in, the, in the earlier 60s. That was kind of good for me because that kind of got me understanding all, all of that. And then later, he was in the San Diego area. had a, his own uh, Honda dealership in uh, Poway. Uh, of, of, of there. So he had a, a career. And he's, later, uh, we lost him with some health, uh, health uh, problems. Oh. And um, the only one in the family that wasn't a motorcyclist was was my my older sister, and she just she became an airline stewardess and different things. Just kind of kind of had her whole life. But then, but I was the third, and did mine. But so as I was racing, my younger sister Nancy and my younger brother David, so they got to go along to you know to, to the races to watch you know watch me ride and everything with my folks. And so uh, so Nancy, yeah, so she we we got her that we we lived by then out in. Uh, uh, Benita, which is kind of by uh, east of Chula Vista, San Diego area, and kind of out in the, right out in the hills. And so when we moved out to there, um, and then mini bikes were coming in, so I started getting first Nancy, and then eventually, you know, David. Uh, we had mini bikes for him to ride and that type of thing. And so, yeah, Nancy at one time was, and you, you can't, I guess they can't use the term anymore, but they used to call it the powder puff class. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you never get away saying that anymore. But uh, but yeah, she was like the powder puff class champion riding. Uh, there used to be a, a couple of TT tracks down in the San Diego, which left and right hand over the jump and everything. So, so she got into into that, and so she was a she was a good rider at, in in those in her early uh, in her teens. But then later, you know, got married, had, had some kids, and, and and whatever. But then later, probably 1980s or so, her and her husband they created a um, uh, a company called Trail Boss Tours. Where they were taking people, uh, they would fly them into San Diego, where people could drive and meet them in San Diego, and they would dr- ride them down to either maybe just a short weekend to Mike Sky Ranch, or they also had a couple of them all the way down to La Paz and even uh, to Cabo, and they had they had a real fun ride. I went on one time with them. It was called the Rip to the Tip, and so it was the day after Christmas. We left San Diego, heading heading south, and we pulled into Cabo uh, on New Year's Eve day. Just in time, they had it all figured out, you know, where we stopped along the way, you know, New Year's Eve day, go to the hotel, got showered up and everything. And then we're Cabo Wabo and all the stuff, you know, for, uh, for New Year's, an amazing time from there. So that went on a long time. And then, well, about the 2008, 2009, when recession hit and a few problems down in Mexico and various different kind of things. And so they they, they closed up the, the business. But but they were riding so many, they were, they were putting on like 30 30 rides uh, a year. And so then somewhere along the way, they got to know all the different Baja people and people racing Baja, and they would go down even just to kind of watch. Well, so but anyway, so Nancy finally one year wanted to uh, ride in it, and they did have a women's class. And um, so this has got to be about 2008, seven, eight, somewhere in there. Um, she ended up winning the, uh, she was the, became the first woman to, to win a class down there uh, whatever they had this this race, but she won the women's class in the in the Baja 1000 from uh, all the way from Ensenada to uh, to uh, La Paz. Wow! Yeah, yeah, and we have some great pictures of her, and she's she's a fast rider, and even even these days, I mean, she's she's only like 
five years younger than younger than me, but still her and her husband, Chris, they'll hop on bikes and ride down to La Paz, ride to Cabo and you know, whatever. And the, some of it's road, you know, a lot of it's, you know, that highway one net down there through Mexico now is uh, uh, a lot of it's road, but they can still, they venture off into the, the dirt and the trails and, you know, all the you know, Bay of LA and all the back, back ways to get down into, uh, you know, Loreto and some of the, some of the best spots of Baja there, there. So they know Baja like the back of their hand, but yeah, but she's got, she's got a class win down there which is uh we're real, real proud of her for that and wow. uh, and then my, my had a younger brother david who unfortunately we, we lost him uh, some years uh, but he was actually uh, uh as in the ama hall of fame as as am i and my dad so the three of us actually made it to the ama uh, hall of fame and david won a lot of uh, uh, road race uh, championships and uh, later was um, working in bike sales and stuff down in san diego and unfortunately went up we, we lost him uh, along the way so we, we miss him a lot but uh but yeah, our whole family, as I said, virtually, you know, has been at it. And, uh, you know, my mom and dad started with them and they were great supporters of, of, of me and all of, uh, you know, anyone in the family, if you want to do something doing on with motorcycling, uh, they were, they were behind us. So. Motorcycle so rolling. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, we're, I just, I was, I, I'm just very lucky. You know, you know, I, I always considered being one of the luckiest time. Just, I had so much support. It was what helped me, but it was just, you know, I said, I feel bad sometimes. I'll have all kinds of people all the time tell me, Oh man, you're so lucky. You know, like my my mom and dad would never have let me, you know, have a bike, and I had to go, you know, sneak one out and ride whatever. And you know, it was totally the other way around for my folks. Of course, they they were in the motorcycle business. They had their shops and everything, but um, you know, they were they would they would go. And my mom's, you know, cleaning goggles and doing things. My dad, my dad's working on the bikes, and it was a for us. It was always just a big family family affair. You know, going to the races and. Uh, um, we just, it's, it's, it's been our world. So I've never, I've never done anything else. I don't know if it made something better out there. I don't know, but I, I've never done anything else but motorcycling. <laughs> so, uh, I think I, I think I'm kind of stuck here. Well, I mean, from, from one San Diego native to another, I've done a lot, man. I've done the off-road scene. Mm-hmm. I've done the surfing scene, plenty of drugs in my time. And there's, there's nothing better than bikes, man. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that for yeah. you know from experience. Amen. Amen. From my infinite wisdom of thirty-one years of life, you know. <laughs> yeah. So young pup. We're all we're we're very lucky to have him. And you know, and I'll just one one quick little thing. You know, about at a time, but the you know all this coronavirus thing is going on right now. You know, so many people are all you know they're they're stuck on their couch and they can't do anything and they're all these other things. And you know, the motorcycle business is really doing great right now. You know, because people who have bikes or, you know, they're, they're getting on their bikes and they're, you know, they're just, you know, small packs, maybe, you know, half a dozen guys, whatever. They're riding over to Phoenix and back or they're going to go up to, you know, Monterey, all these things like that. And people are riding and, and like that's what we know from the current motorcycle business, tires and filters and oil. And, you know, people are, are buying stuff, everything, and they're getting out and everything. And the off-road bikes are doing well and even side-by-sides. And so the people the thrill of motorcycling you know people they're they're still on the slide they're kind of getting things out you know in in, in riding them and everything they're, they're not willing to give that up and um but it, the motorcycle business is really going going well right now it's just the thrill of the bike and thrill of the ride and uh it's, it's carrying it's carrying a lot of people through I, th- I think it's um i think it's really getting back to what it was because i think for i mean even since i've been riding um i've noticed kind of a dip uh in you know seeing seeing bikes out there um, and I think recently, I'd say within the last two or three months, I've seen a lot more bikes out than I had previously. And I think it's finally because people realize that it's the ultimate social distance tool. It absolutely, like, you know, yeah. we, I mean, the three of us can go, you know, we, we can hop on a bike and we can go forever. 
and yeah. not say a word to each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And the nice thing about it, there's not as many cars on the road either. They're all they're all home on the couch. You know, so the roads are more open. You know, to, to go and, uh, and so the motorcycles are out there and having a great time. So we're we're winning the game. That that's it. <laughs> that's it, man. You know, um, hopefully, uh, you know, I I know. You know, I know uh, Dave. He's he's getting ready to do a pretty big ride. Uh, actually, a week a week from now, um, he's getting ready to go do a big one. Uh, Drifter, you're getting ready to go do another big one, right? Yeah. My, so the Thirteen Rebels have a thing. It's basically our version of an Iron Butt, and um, I'm gonna try and do that next week sometime. Great. Hmm. I'm I'm so excited for you, man. I'm I'm stuck. I can't really go do anything. So, I mean, the 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 closest thing I get to go do to uh, you know getting out and going doing the thing is I I get to leave next week to go to another state for some training. Well, sort of, and then come back and sit in my house again. <laughs> you get to edit these. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least I, I mean, hey, I I do virtually get to hang out with awesome people like Don. Um, <clears throat> booze fighter is trying to get a hold of a <clears throat> booze fighter ripper um yeah so for you know <laughs> hey who knows maybe it'll work i don't know you know but no i i have a lot of fun doing this stuff cool you know, don thank you so much for your time yeah oh that's it's great talking to you guys everything just fun to fun to compare notes what everybody what everybody does and yeah we'll do it again let's do it again absolutely yeah. absolutely hey, you heard it right there he's yeah. willing to do it again yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, lot more, a lot more stories to be told yet. Then well, we are ready we to listen. We we got nothing but time. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that's it for us today. So thank you, uh, thank you again, Don, for coming on. Um, we had a blast. Uh, I hope you did as well. Yeah. Um, for all our listeners at home, uh, we appreciate you guys' support. Uh, don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And. Uh, yeah, we got some pretty cool stuff lined up in the coming weeks as well. Um, and can't wait to share it with you guys. So, again, thank you guys for all the love and support. This is Punk Rock, and we're signing out. All right.